friends, and welcome to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. My name is Nathan Coleman-Lamb, and I'm joined today by Johanna Mellis. Hi, Johanna. Hi. We don't have Derek with us today, um, and because we don't have Derek with us, uh, an interview that was supposed to be 45 minutes turned into one that was way longer than 45 minutes, uh, and I'm, <laughs> I'm not sorry because it was good stuff. Um, so we won't talk too long now because we actually got, it's all in the interview, but we are talking today to Kurt Streeter of the New York Times, um, and it's a lovely interview, I think, because one, he tells us an exceptionally important story in the world of sport and athlete activism today, the story of Maya Moore and her work um, helping to get Jonathan Irons, a man wrongfully committed for a crime he ostensibly committed at the age of 16, freed from prison. Uh, and so it's a story that I think everyone who cares about sports and politics needs to be paying attention to. And I don't think it's actually, frankly, gotten as much coverage as it should have. So um, we spend most of the interview um, talking through that story with Kurt because it needs to be told. But then the interview ends up being twice as long because Kurt's such an interesting guy. It was fascinating to talk to someone who has been a, a longtime journalist and sports journalist about his experience in the field and his experience as a college athlete, a college tennis player at Berkeley. Um, so we really do a deep dive really just in terms of how he experienced all that stuff. And, you know, this is the reason we do this podcast, right? Absolutely. No, we are super excited. This ended up just being such a fantastic interview that we really can't wait for y'all to hear about it. And on that note, if you like the podcast, as we always say, if you like the podcast, please rate and review. I have to say, I am disappointed that we only have two text reviews on iTunes. And I know that people listen to it on iTunes. I know some of you don't or cannot, and that's fine. But please leave us a review. Um, it would mean a lot to us. Um, and um, or you can email us at the end of sport at gmail.com on Twitter and Instagram. We are at end of sport pod. And um, this is new. We have a great website that uh, Derek put together for us that is really just fantastic. The web the website is the end of sport.com. Kurt Streeter is a sports journalist at the New York Times, where he primarily writes features and essays on stories related to race, gender, and social justice. Prior to coming to the Times in 2017, he was a senior writer for ESPN. He also covered the inner city for the Baltimore Sun and spent 15 years at the Los Angeles Times, where he wrote about everything from crime to transportation to religion. He is also a former athlete and in his younger days played college tennis at California Berkeley and was world ranked by the ATP Tour for three years. Uh, and don't think, by the way, that we aren't excited about that. Kurt, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks. Nice to be here, Nathan. Hello, Johanna. Hi. So first thing we want to ask you, we ask everyone, Kurt, um, how has the pandemic, uh, the uprisings, everything been treating you in Seattle, Washington? Well, it's kind of strange, you know. We're here in the where the the first, uh, you know, the, the first outbreak was. I live probably mm, about 25 minutes from the senior center where that occurred, way back in I guess February. Now seems like about 10 years ago. Um, the, since then, you know, the city, you know, we've done a pretty good job here in Washington and and in Seattle of um, you know beating it back and initially bending the curve. Um, I'm a little bit concerned because. You know, although I think, you know, we're not uh, doing the going back to we haven't gone back to normal, like, say, Texas and Florida. Those places did. But 
uh, you can see people getting a little bit lax right now. And uh, he certainly cause, causes us some concern. I've got a nine-year-old son and uh, we, we play it very much on the conservative on the conservative end in terms of seeing other people. And um, yeah, we'll just have to see. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a tough, tough, tough thing all the way around. And particularly, <laughs> I think it's difficult when you, when you're in a place that um, has done a pretty good job and you can't really see the, you know, the, the terrible effects right in front of your, right in, in your face, like say the people in New York did. Um, totally. So. Yep. Yep, that's it. That's the reality we're all living right now. Yeah. Um, yep. So listen, there, we don't have super long today, uh, and we have a ton that we want to get into with you. So um, we'll, we'll get on the back end. We're going to get into some more kind of um, varied topics. But the, the main focus for our conversation today is that we want to discuss the really incredible story you have covered for The Times. Maya Moore's abrupt and potentially permanent departure from the WNBA to pursue justice for Jonathan Irons, a man who was wrongfully imprisoned for over 20 years for a crime he was of, excuse me, accused of committing at the age of 16. And of course, this is a really big question, but for listeners who are unfamiliar, can you first explain the Jonathan Irons case itself and then how Maya Moore became involved and what has transpired in the last month? Well, I'll try to keep it uh, keep it short and give the the Cliff's, Cliff's notes version because the you know the Irons case is pretty kind of, is fairly complicated. Um, and um, so I you know we, you know, we, we this is a case that occurred uh, a crime that occurred in a working class suburb of St. Louis, uh, O'Fallon, Missouri, probably about twenty minutes or so from. 20, maybe, maybe, maybe further, 30, 30 minutes or so from downtown St. Louis, um, a predominantly white working class neighborhood. Jonathan Irons uh, was 16 at the time this crime, crime occurred, uh, young African-American, uh, a teen who had had friends in the area. So he was sometimes in this neighborhood where a, uh, a burglary, burglary occurred and there was a shooting uh, in the home where the homeowner confronted the, uh, confronted the burglar. Um, the homeowner ended up being shot twice, including once in the right temple. Uh, he ended up surviving. Uh, and um, couple about a week later, uh, Jonathan Irons then was apprehended by police, by the O'Fallon Police Department. Uh, taken in and uh, accused of of that crime, he had been Jonathan. Jonathan, by his own admission, had been in the neighborhood uh, on that day. Um, so uh, he he was he was linked to to that crime. Although in the end, uh, there was no DNA evidence, no fingerprint evidence, no blood no blood evidence, nothing linking him to this crime other than the. Um, and the strongest, the strongest thing was uh, the the homeowner uh, had uh, identified uh, Irons uh, in 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 court uh, when Irons was uh, in a uh, prison jumpsuit, and then also um, you know so before the before the judge and also when Irons was uh, sitting next to his lawyer um, in what was pretty much an entirely all white. Uh, courtroom, so it's fairly obvious who the who the uh, who the uh, defendant was. Um, so Jonathan Irons then ends up 
uh, ends up being in prison from the time that he was 16 uh, when, when the crime occurred uh, all the way then until uh, just a couple of weeks ago when Maya, Maya Moore and the, the team that, that she helped assemble and all of the pressure that, that she helped put on uh, the, uh, the, the state of Missouri to, to review the case. That case was thoroughly reviewed uh, in a sort of a last-ditch appeal. And it was found that uh, Mr. Irons was was let, was let go. He still had, I believe, you know, he was in year I think twenty three or four of his sentence. He had over twenty five years left to serve. Uh, so it was really a, a, a you know quite quite a case to follow. There's a lot lot to it legally, um, but uh, Jonathan Irons is important to know too. It had never. Had always said that he he was he was innocent. Uh, there's just a lot of things in this case that w- that seemed to go wrong. When you look at at and when you go back and you look at the records, and in the end, uh, the judge who sided for him uh, said it said it best when he he called um, called the case weak and circumstantial at best. So uh, that was that was in the in the. Uh, in, in the ruling that ended up, you know, uh, uh, freeing freeing Mr. Irons. So Maya Moore then, uh, how did she get to know Jonathan Irons? She, Maya grew up in Jefferson City, the the prison where Jonathan was housed, the Jefferson City uh, Correctional Center, which is the maximum security prison in in Missouri, and the main ma- maximum security prison. Um, is there right right there just outside of Jefferson City? Although Maya had had been had I think left Jefferson City with her mom when she was about eleven. Her family, uh, many members of her family, still live in in Jeff City, and including her grandfather and grandmother, uh, godparents, aunts, uncle, uncle, all that. Uh, it's the, it, her, through her grandparents. Uh, her grandparents were involved in the prison ministry. It's a deeply religious family, and they uh, got to know Jonathan. Especially, particularly, I think her her grandfather Hugh Flowers got to know Jonathan way many years ago. I think that would have been in around 2000 when Hugh Flowers was teaching music in the uh, in in the prison, and he was really taken with Jonathan. And um, the family just eventually ended up having a uh, you know bonding with him and coming in. You know every many many members of the of the of Maya's extended family eventually sort of adopted him in a way um and then eventually uh, Maya came to visit him i think for the first time right before she goes off to Yukon i believe that was i don't have the story right in front of me but the 2007 or so right before she heads off for her freshman year at Yukon and she meets Jonathan for the first time they strike up a a a connection he can't believe that she's there she's this you know, she's the, the the national basketball player of the year, and she's already in high school, is touted as the next big thing in women's basketball, and she's on ESPN, and here she is coming in to to meet uh, uh, an inmate whose life was completely different than hers. Uh, but they they really, as far as my reporting shows, and from talking to both of them, and it's clear as clear as day that you know. Just really, a, what became sort of a, a brother, brother and sister type bond. Um, so um, Maya stayed in touch with him over through the years at UConn. She has a 
an incredible sort of historic career there where she, uh, they win multiple national titles. She's college player of the year. She ends up being the WNBA top pick. She's, she's compared to Michael George, sort of the Michael Jordan of her, of women's women's basketball. She leads the Minnesota Lynx then to, to multiple uh, championships. And she doesn't really th- talk much about Jonathan Irons to others and, and about the connection that she has with him um, until uh, 2016 when she starts getting involved in, more involved in social justice, justice issues um, after you know that is, was summer of uh, when there were several several shootings of young black men and the Minnesota Lynx become one of the first teams to really speak out strongly uh, you know for justice and for police reform and for you know for just changes in the justice system. Maya is one of the leaders of of that movement on that team, and this is several months before Colin Kaepernick. And that, as she gets involved in that, that sort of becomes a sort of a um, an awakening for her in a way. And she starts then to sort of really sort of connect that, hey, you know, I'm close with an inmate who, uh, you know, my family certainly believes, and everything that I've ever been told uh, believes was wrong, wrongfully convicted. She starts talking about him more and more, uh, starting in that in that period, um, and eventually uh, she ends up leaving the game uh, in a in a, in a surprise uh, early early last year. Uh, and this is, this is sort of the when she leaves when she leaves basketball, she's still in her prime. She's tw- you know twenty nine thirty years old. Uh, she is basically, it, it would be like the equivalent of Steph Curry stepping away from the NBA. Um, and she still has many more years to go. Um, but as, you know, as I started doing some digging, uh, on this, it became immediately clear once I connected with her and with her through her agent and, and I started reading about what was going on in her life. It became immediately clear, and she confirmed that a, a part of a significant part of the reason that she left basketball and left the career and the game that she loved was to to try to you know spend more time and focus her effort on trying to help uh, Jonathan Irons' appeals. And um, as he was going through a period where like very very important court cases were coming up that would really have if he if he loses those court cases, he probably doesn't have a shot to get out to to be released. So, uh, while that's not the entire reason that she left basketball and took this hiatus that she's still on, um, uh, it was certainly a big, big part of it. You know, the other part of it is she's frankly just bur- burnt out. You know, she like a lot of the top women's basketball players, uh, Maya's played without a break for years. Really, I think most of through through most of her adult life. And you know, the top women's players, in order to maximize their earnings potential, you know, they have to go and play over in Europe or Russia and Asia pretty much all year. They don't really get a, an extended break. And uh, it's, it's, you know, I think she, she just came to a point where after winning maybe more than almost anybody else in the game, she was just, uh, she needed that break. So she focused on kind of healing up and then her, her, um, ministry work in Atlanta where she lives and being with her family, connecting with them, and then also with helping Jonathan and uh, ended up being very, very successful. So uh, 
it all worked out in the end as he got out just a few weeks ago and she was right there. So that's the story in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Like, thank you so, so very much for just like really laying it out for us. I mean, as you said at the beginning, it is such a complicated story um, and just so many details. And I, I, I know I really appreciate uh, you laying out. I'm sure that uh, Nathan and, and our listeners do as well. Um, and so, you know, I wanted to, to tie in her work to sort of what's going on more broadly in the world of athlete activism, um, because, you know, a lot of people are talking about it right now. And it seems quite common, I, w- I would say, compared to like past historical eras of athlete activism. But really, as you laid out for us, what she did is at a completely different level than what anybody else has done, um, particularly right now. And sort of knowing that, like, to what extent do you think Maya Moore is getting the credit and the recognition she deserves? And, you know, we Mm. ask this because there's, you know, a lot of uh, praise for Colin Kaepernick and even uh, Megan Rapinoe. And and while many people detest them, they're also very, very highly celebrated. I mean, they're practically household names right now. Mm. Um, But it doesn't seem as if Moore is being viewed in the same way. And we're just sort of wondering, like, why do you think that is? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a little bit hard. You know, well, it's a little bit hard for me to say that. Well, I feel like I pushed really to try to get get her and and tell the story in a big way, and the paper really got behind that and ended up, you know, being front page, you know, news on in the New York Times and and um, also in you know the first big story I wrote about her. We 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 blew out on the sports page and all that. So I think we've done a pretty good job uh, on that. I think maybe we could have done a little bit more even. But overall, yeah, I, I do believe um, you know she probably if she if she was a male player of the same stature and you got to realize how I don't you know the listeners need to know uh, her stature. I mean, this is literally. I mean, her her career uh, would compare favorably with any of the top male superstars in terms of championships, gold medals. She's done it all. And when you watch her play, she's a, she's a, uh, a, an incredible athlete to watch in every, in every way. So if you took somebody at the same level, a Steph or a LeBron and, and they were going to leave the game for a year or two and end up helping an inmate, um, be released, uh, from prison after shining a light on a, on what was a very shoddy uh, conviction, um, I would imagine that that would be much much bigger news. Absolutely, absolutely. So it's hard for me to say why. I mean, other than you know, obviously factors. Uh, you know, all women athletes face uh, an uphill battle in terms of recognition, in terms of you know, people being excited about whatever they do. Uh, uh, and you know, we can't, we can never really, we have to view pretty much everything these days. Well, yeah, it, it, we need to view this too from the, from, from the racial, uh, aspect as well. I mean, you have a black woman doing this, maybe if it's, maybe if it, maybe if it's Megan Rapino or, you know, um, uh, you know, a white athlete, a white female athlete, maybe there's, maybe they get, uh, a little bit more recognition. Also, you know, there's nuance to it. Absolutely, I like everything. Maya is a she's a, she's a wonderful, wonderful human being. One of the best I have ever been around, really. But she's not a person who's like out, um, kind of tooting her horn or really like all. She's not 
really into pushing kind of the narrative of, of what she's doing in the media. It was difficult for me to to get on this story and and have her open up for it. I mean, she understands the power of of telling stories through the media, no doubt, and she's doing she's doing some of that on her own. But she's not somebody that goes out and seeks the seeks the limelight at all. Um, you know, and then while I say that, I'm also thinking of, of Kaepernick. I mean, it's not like he, it's not like you hear him talking a whole lot. Um, so uh, I, don't, I don't know. It's just, it's just complicated. And definitely, I mean, anytime a, anytime a woman is, it's just an uphill battle. Absolutely. And that's why, you know, I try in my, in my work when I can, I'm always going to try to, to write about people that, that are a little bit overlooked. That's sort of a, been a broad theme in my entire career. So. Yeah. And, you know, I guess I, I probably could have prefaced that question a little better and that it was, it, that was not meant to be sort of a knock on your work. I mean, you're, oh, no, I didn't, yeah, I didn't take it as such. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You, I mean, your New York times pieces are so good. Like they really are just so good. They really show that like human element and also show sort of how unique it is that she did this. And, you know, it, I, I do think that your point about the, that you made towards the end of that answer about sort of her being not only a female athlete, but a, a black female athlete, I think, you know, even when we think of like the history of black female activism, like the history's there, historians have worked on it, but it's in terms of like really being, I guess, raised to the level of like pub- public consciousness, you know, we're just not quite there yet. Um, and, you know, and look, I'm still trying. I'm still learning about that. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm a black yeah. male uh, uh, who, you know, pretty pretty aware of history and the civil rights movement and protest. And and uh, you know, I went to Berkeley, the cradle of campus <laughs> protest. Mm-hmm. And there's still I'm still learning about the the role of of, of black women in in you know speaking up for justice. So uh, yeah, it's that 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 has been a hidden. Um, that's been hidden really from the, the broader societal narrative for a long time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I was wondering if you could, um, like you talked about like how she's at the height of her career and sort of where she stood in the field and how she's really just, she's really just at the peak of her career, really dominating, uh, uh, women's basketball. And I was sort of wondering if you could say a little bit about, you know, like what was she giving up in, in terms of her career? you know, and, and leaving at that moment, um, you know, what sorts of training and sort of, uh, competitive opportunities did she give up to do this? Well, actually still in her prime, you know, meant that she's, you know, and she's still on a very, you know, solid team. It's a playoff type team. Um, you know, that had, that, that had won championships just very recently meant she was walking away from from helping the Lynx to win more WNBA championships, uh, she, uh, you know, she w- is signed on the Jordan brand with Nike. So uh, she, uh, you know, she's still work. She still is working with Nike. I'm not exactly sure if that's changed or not, but you no, know, she just had. She would have just continued to be in the in the limelight as much as women's basketball players are in the limelight, and one of the best players in the world. Um, and, uh, so she walked away from all of that, all that that could bring. And that means the Olympics, for instance, uh, when she announced, she initially announced that she was leaving basketball for one year and that was 
in January, February of, of last year when she made that announcement. And then uh, this year then, in January, and I broke this story, she announced again that she's going to actually continue the hiatus for another year. So that meant that she was leaving behind the Olympics. Um, and uh, she had, you know, so just another chance to be a leader on the, on, on the Olympic team. Uh, so, you know, any time that, any time that uh, you would have seen tuned in, that the world would have been tuned into women's basketball, she would have been right at the forefront of it. So she, she left all that willingly, and she's pretty happy right now, i got to say. Uh, that's great to hear. That's wonderful, yeah. actually. That's, that's really, that's the thing we always forget, right? I mean, it's like people act like a career in professional sport is the be-all, end-all, right? Um, and we lose sight of like the, the fact that these are human beings who are working at their jobs. And sometimes that's not actually the most pleasurable experience in the world, right? And there are other things we'd be rather be doing. Um, so I'm really glad that you, you pointed that out. Now, my, my next question here is, and, and by the way, I should say, actually, before I get to it, because um, we've been referencing these stories, we are absolutely going to be linking Kurt's stories in the show notes. So if folks haven't had a chance, uh, he did a magnificent job of laying out um, really like the, the, as you said, the Cliff Notes version of this story. Um, but for even more of a deep dive, uh, it's well worth reading his, his Times pieces. So we will definitely be linking those. Can I, now, can I just interject for one, one Please do, on please that. do. Something that I forgot to mention. Perhaps I think one of the most shocking things of this of this is going back to the criminal case. One of the most shocking ca- things about this case was that uh, you know Jonathan Irons is a is a is a teenager when this occurs. He's a juvenile, so 16 years old um, when the crime occurs. Again, he um, and and the crime that he's accused that he was accused of, um, and even if he had done it, right? Which he denies and which I do not, you know, all, all evidence, uh, there's not, certainly not a not strong evidence that, uh, that he did it. Even if he had done it, he was given a 50-year sentence as a 16, 17-year-old um, for a crime that was not a murder. Now, yeah. you know, that, that when, I, when I saw that, and I, I had co- I've covered criminal justice and crime, written about plenty of murders, plenty of court cases in the past, particularly in my time at the Los Angeles Times. I was just shocked by that. I've covered murders where in California where murderers get 25 years to life. At least they get a chance to parole at 25 years. I've covered and written extensively about about um, you know, you know murders murders who fully admit that they've committed murder who were let out of let out at 25 years at tw- roughly 25 years um on on good conduct because they 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 proved to the courts that they've turned things around and so uh in this case you have a kid who was really given no ch- no chance to you know, we just don't our the fact that we have a justice system that would treat a, a, a teen this way and again for a case that's not a murder it just it just surprised the hell out of me and he he wouldn't have been he wouldn't have been able to have parole until something like 40 or 42 years had gone by and because he was adamant that he was innocent he he told me many times i would never take a plea deal or take a parole deal because i'd have to say that i did it and i didn't do it so that means i'm i'm here for 50 years uh, so you know, I, I, I'd forgotten to mention that when I, when we were talking about the case, but 
when I saw that, I just, you know, I, I knew I had to get on the story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's it. And honestly, as you're talking, I'm thinking about this, this case that's in Michigan right now of this 15 year old girl who is, is uh, to my understanding is in some way, is it somehow imprisoned because she wasn't doing her remote schoolwork? Um, I honestly am speechless. I, yeah, every time yeah. that crosses my radar, I mean, like we understand, we, you know, we all all of us here and our listeners, like, I mean, I mean, at this point, after what we've experienced in terms of uprisings, if if people didn't understand it before, right? I mean, like, no one can, uh, I think, in good faith, say they don't understand that this is a white supremacist society, marred by structural racism, and that that manifests uh, as clearly as it does anywhere in the criminal justice system. I mean, that's, you know, clear as day. That's why that's the focal point of this resistance right now. But yet it's, it's kind of what you're saying, Kurt, even when you know all that, some of these cases yeah. boggle the mind, right? I mean, I just can't wrap my head around what could possibly be, like it doesn't feel like it could be real because it is so profoundly unjust that yeah. I just want, you just want to scream. I mean, like, that's just someone who's I'm not being affected at all, right? It's not my life, but it's like, how could this be a world where that can happen? <laughs> and that's yeah. it. That's happening everywhere all the time, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that wasn't even my question. I'm going to ask my question now, but you just like, I, I really appreciate that you added that piece. Um, so what I was going to say is though, because as I was reading your, your stories, and if I was to offer kind of a bit of a close reading, I would be tempted to suggest what I was kind of getting from your prose was some kind of implicit connection between the experience of Maya Moore even as a basketball player um, and as an activist. That is that like we're generally invited to view sport as this sort of sacrosanct space, free of politics, a site of leisure for pay. You know, it's bullshit. I, I, we don't actually see it that way, but that's the, that's the dominant shut up and dribble kind of narrative. And yet, as we discussed in an earlier episode with Elizabeth Williams of the Atlanta Dream, you know, and as you have discussed earlier today in this show, right, the labor demands of women's basketball are extremely demanding just the day-to-day -day labor in the WNBA, but uh, in terms of travel schedules, et cetera. And then also the fact that there is no off-season, right? They're working around the clock, around the calendar year. Uh, professional athletes don't usually have to do that and really should not be doing that because their body is an essential part of their work and they have to um, manage their body's needs in order to be able to perform. And yet the, the calendar for women's basketball players doesn't actually allow them to do that. It's too punishing. Right. Um, and it's not well compensated either at the same time. And all of this is clearly deeply racialized as well. So, I mean, me speculating, I, I feel perhaps this is one reason why WNBA players have been so outspoken, not just even beyond Maya Moore, right? I mean, among the major professional sports leagues in the United States, I don't think anyone has been as outspoken as a, a kind of a general league as WNBA players. Um, as advocates for racial justice. And perhaps that's in part because they have a crystal clear view of how white supremacy shapes U.S. society. So what I'm just wondering basically here is, do you think there's anything to this? Because I think a conventional perspective would no doubt suggest that a professional basketball player and say a prisoner like Jonathan Irons um, are worlds apart in terms of class and status. Um, and although there is obviously a very profound difference that I don't mean to mitigate here, I mean, there is a profound difference, obviously. I still wonder at whether there are also grounds for solidarity in harm that are perhaps overlooked sometimes. Uh, that's, those are, that's a pretty, uh, 
that's all very, very interesting. I mean, I would say regarding the WNBA and the players that I've come to know, and I haven't really, it's only, it's been fairly recently that I've started to really write about women's basketball. I've been lucky enough to write about Maya, um, uh, Sabrina Ionescu, the number one draft pick uh, in the W in the league uh, coming up and also Brianna Stewart. So I'm still sort of getting my my feet wet in in that territory, um, but it's definitely my sense that, just like you said, clear it's clear that 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 the that that this is a league that is on top of all of these issues and has been a out, right out in front, although you know not not always getting all the credit in terms of speaking up for for justice and for change, uh, and it's. It's clear from talking to people in the league and from my, you know, I know I've got to know Maya pretty well. I mean, the, exactly, they 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 have a completely different, very very different experience than NBA players. They are uh, they are uh, very attuned to, uh, I think, uh, uh, j- just injustice for from for many ways. Just I mean, just simply the injustice of uh, you know not necessarily getting the recognition or the pay or the breaks that they should get in terms of you know as you mentioned the the, the you know just uh, their working conditions. Um, but it's also a league that's that's uh, you know I, I just think particularly the 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 black women player the the black players in this league I. They, I mean, they just get it. They, 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 they get it, and they lead. And then the white players, like Brianna Stewart, listen, Sue Bird, listen, and they support. Uh, because I just think there's just a general empathy and understanding for the for the things that they've had to go th- that particularly the black players have had to go through. And not all, not all the black players come from poverty and difficult situations. Maya does, Maya is a, basically a middle class kid and uh, grew up grew up middle class and you know was sort of uh, as you know uh, uh, like myself didn't necessarily have all of the uh, um, you know we were we have we have the advantage and privilege of not uh, facing kind of poverty that many of many of fellow black Americans, right? So lucky in that regard. And so there's there's certainly a number of good number of people like like us in that league. Um there's also people that really have had real, you know, deeper, deeper economic struggles and um all the all of the struggles of growing up, yeah, you know, in the inner city in in, in America and beyond. Um and they're just really then Particularly, those players, I think, are just very, very attuned to 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 the injustice that that we all face. So, I guess that's a roundabout and a very long-winded way of saying, and I hope I said it in a, in a way that's digestible. Um, this is just a league that gets it because they have experienced uh, firsthand, you know, um, you know, the, all all of these troubles. So, I think that they can relate to. You know, when there's a shooting of a, you know, Breonna Taylor or, uh, you know, any, you know, Michael Brown and in Ferguson, uh, uh, when any of the, any of the sort of thing or people being uh, kept from the voter rolls, um, just you know, problems with with poverty and education in our society, 
Um, I don't know they just seem so attuned to it. And I think, you know, a lot of the, in the NBA, a lot of the players are as well, but they're um, a, maybe because they make so much money and they're, uh, maybe they feel that they can't speak out. Maybe, maybe when you have a l- l- little bit less, you have less to lose and you can go for it more. You know, you don't have a $50 million contract uh, to try to keep, you know, keep going. You know, uh, you know, my, my hasn't, hasn't made anything close to that. And um, so that maybe that gives her a little bit more freedom, less, less ties to those or the corporate beast. I'm not exactly sure, but that, that may be, that may be part of it. Well, thank you. That was, that was definitely digestible from my perspective. I'm, I mean, you like really laid it out, like why the kind of league culture is the way it is. But then of course, also like the different kind of socio, like the financial differences between the men's and women's leagues and why that uh, might make a difference, which I honestly hadn't thought about. So I thought that was really fascinating. Um, and so, I mean, the men are speaking out now. I mean, everybody's speaking out now too which is a really interesting we're just in an interesting moment now so um but yeah i'm sorry to cut you off no 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 please please um and so this is obviously a truly fascinating story that you have sort of told and like written about as it's unfolded um and so this question is a bit is a bit of a gear shift but we were wondering if you could tell us what it's like to report on a story like this um, is it as simple as saying, you know, that you work for the New York Times and then all the doors are open, but then, you know, even then, how do you gain trust with people? And, you know, we're also wondering, like, what is the, to what extent is there sort of an emotional dimension for you? Um, you know, a lot of people say that journalists are supposed to be objective, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, you're a person who has beliefs and political beliefs. And in a moment like this, you're a person with affect. So what does it feel like to report a story uh, where you know the stakes are so high, but you don't know the outcome as it is playing out? Those, those are good questions. Um, I would say, so, yeah, sure. It, it, it does, it does, no doubt that it helps to have the uh, New York Times, uh, you know, to call somebody and say you're from the New York Times and try to, and, and that does open doors at times. Just as it was, you know, I was at the LA Times before this and also at ESPN and those have always and the Baltimore Sun, those are all, those are all pretty, you know, uh, powerful organizations. And, um, and particularly the Times has a certain kind of allure, right, and, uh, and, and prestige. So that does open doors, but not always. And in this case, I mean, I don't, certainly that helped out. Uh, how did I get on it? I, you know, I didn't know Maya. I don't. Again, I don't. I'm a general assignment sort of enterprise writer, so I'm responsible for just kind of coming up for with interesting ideas and stories from all over the place in sports. So I'm not really. De- I wasn't really deeply connected with the league, and didn't have real, really deep sources there. But um, so I couldn't just reach out to her directly. And she's also pretty private with it, and kind of keeps the press. She's very careful with the press. Um, so this was a case where I contacted her agents, um, and, uh, then, you know, there was just a back and forth on that. And I sort of pitched, I, I pitched to them, you know, Hey, what I'd like to kind of get into the story and figure out what's going on, why, why she's left the game. And then this deeper story with, with Jonathan Irons and ju- criminal justice, I was able to, the fact that in my previous uh, reporting life, I've 
I have spent a lot of time covering, uh, you know, prisons, crime, police, courts, uh, and I think that was then I was able, I then I was able to kind of sell them on, you know, I, I have an understanding for this sort of issue for these sorts of issues. And also a lot of my stories are, are really sort of deep human interest level stories. So I, uh, then I'm where I would have a lot of nuance. I will often take a lot of time with my stories. I think when you, if you read them, hopefully you'll see like the care that I put into them. Um, so I'm able to then now kind of present to people. And I was in this case, like here's two or three stories to look at that will show you, you know, how I go about the work as I'm pitching to them to let me inside. And I'm telling them in a case like this, as I consider these kind of this a special type of story, I would say, you know, I um, this is not a kind of story that I would do. Like, you know, I make one or two calls and do two, sure, you know, three interviews and then we and then I write a story. No, this is going to be much deeper than that. So, and, and can I come along for the ride? And uh, so it certainly helps to have sort of that, you know, the, the resume and the work behind me that then I can show. And um, I think then I just eventually, um, you know, Maya agreed to, to meet with me in Jefferson City as she was going with her family to see Jonathan last, I think that was in March. And um that's when i first met her and um you know from there we just i just kept following for a couple of months and i went down to you know i i went to uh the prison with her i went i had an interview with jonathan inside the prison because then he he also agreed to talk to me i went to atlanta to see my i thought it felt it was important to see maya in her regular environment that she was living in away from basketball. So she lives in Atlanta in a townhouse with her mom and her um, godparents were living in a townhouse across the street from them. Uh, and I wanted to go to church with her. I wanted to see her singing in a choir. All this stuff was very, very important to me in terms of telling a story. And even if it's one line in a story, or even if it doesn't make a story, make it in the final cut. I think it's important for me to really, for these types of pieces, to really get to know my story subject at that sort of level. And then I also went to, uh, I went to Portland when she was coming out to, to speak with Nike, uh, at the Nike campus, um, right during that, that period. Uh, and I think there was, another, uh, there was another visit to Jefferson City for a court hearing. So, you know, it just, took, it just took a lot of patience. And the more you can show, I found that, um, I found that just, just showing up, being there, um, a lot of, a lot of fly in the wall kind of stuff. A lot of times I'll be with people and I don't even take out my notebook. I just want to get to know them at a human level. And that seems to always pay big dividends. I mean, I'm not really trying to, I'm just being myself really, to be honest. And that's really my, I, I like people and I like, and I'm fascinated by the human condition. So, uh, I'm not, I always tell like, I'm not like. Mr. Pushy reporter, like I'm not super aggressive. I can be aggressive if needed, right? But um, and I can be pushy if needed, especially if it's a public official. But when I'm writing about just regular people, I'm going to want to get to know you. And I, I've found um, just over the years, you know, great luck in in that and people opening up. And 
opening up to me, and you know, that was certainly the case. I could have written much, much more actually about this about this case, but you know, um, it th- that's really how I go about the work, and that's how it unfolded. It wasn't just a, just as simple as calling and saying, "Hey, it's the New York Times." And all that said, Maya, Maya and her agent also under, understand and understood like the sort of the power of a story in the New York Times, <laughs> and then it sort of that it reaches maybe a different type of audience than would be on an e, on ESPN or or some yeah. other sort of sports network. So I'm not going to try to get you to dish dirt on your employer here. Um, that that's <laughs> that's not what we do, and that would never be fair. Um, and actually, from what you're telling us, to be quite to be quite frank, like. I got to applaud the New York Times for um, for encouraging you to do the kind of work you're doing because these are stories that we're not seeing elsewhere in the mainstream media. And, and I have to be honest that I'm seeing stories about concussions in football that I'm not seeing elsewhere in the mainstream media in uh, the New York Times as well. So I'm actually pretty pleased with a lot of the New York Times sports reporting. Um, oh, and, you know, yeah, and, and, I, and, I, and I don't give those compliments away that easily because mostly I'm deeply critical of the mainstream media, especially when it comes to sport. Um, but as you've pointed out, you were also previously at ESPN. Um, and you were a journalist who, as you have made very clear, and I think anyone can see immediately in, in reading your work, you're a journalist who does serious work on serious themes related to sport. And that is, again, something we applaud you on wholeheartedly. But here's the thing about ESPN, because I'm not saying that you didn't do serious work at ESPN. The challenge with ESPN is that it's at the heart of the sports media complex. That is, that they are so economically linked with the whole sport industrial complex itself, right? Like for instance, we're seeing this play out right now with college football, right? There's this question of, is there gonna be a college football season? Um, We very much on this show do not think there is and certainly um, are certain that there should not be. Um, But the fact is that ESPN is one of the voices adjudicating whether there will be a college football season, whether or not we see that clearly because they have so much at stake in all this. Right. And so that also means that the people who are covering this question for ESPN, right, that puts them in a pretty complicated situation, I can only imagine, uh, regardless of what it is they actually believe personally or think is right or anything else. Um, so all this is just built into the question, not, not to ask you to like disclose things about the inner workings of ESPN, <laughs> but more just, did you feel like you were somewhat hamstrung working in that context? Like, were there challenges and limitations to being a serious journalists who wanted to tell real stories about harm in sport, but also, you know, navigating a company like that? Hmm. Uh, yeah, that's a tough question. <laughs> yeah, I can't really dish on, on ESPN in that, you know, I mean, they, I, I really enjoyed my time working there and I, you know, it, it's, you know, there's some great, great, great reporters there. Um, and you're absolutely right. They, they, they are, I mean, how do you really, in a pure journalistic sense, uh, cover you know a sport that you're also you have deep financial ties with, you know, as they do with many many of these leagues? So that's a that's a big challenge for them, and um, I, probably they you know there's times when they have to walk very carefully. You know, it's a little bit different than than uh, the New York Times where. You know, um, hopefully we can you know, be a little bit more open and critical without, you know, um, yeah, that's our that's our job is to be critical of the powers that be. Right. Um, that does somewhat change when you're when you're working for an organization like ESPN. There's no doubt about it. There's just no doubt about it. I personally did not really um, 
face that probably because you know what I mean a lot of my work is sort of like sort of on the edges of kind of the mainstream stuff you know um so I was always looking for I didn't I I didn't do any concussion reporting when I was at ESPN I haven't I've never really done concussion work um just as an example um my stuff is my work tends to be these again sort of human interest feature stories oftentimes about people that are that are that are uh not not that most reporters don't even really care about or they're not, or not not even the big stars really um so i think one piece that i did at espn that i was you know a, a typical kind of thing that i did at espn was a piece on the battle over the jim jim thorpe's the the great Native American football player and Olympian Jim Thorpe, one of the greatest athletes of all time. The battle over his remains, the battle over his bones, basically, and how he is uh, buried not in his uh, at his reservation, the in his the lands that he grew up on in in Oklahoma, but in a town in Pennsylvania that is called Jim Thorpe. That cha- <laughs> and there's a whole story about how it became. Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania, um, and there's just been there's been a long running battle over trying to sort of repatriate his remains for you for decades. So that was the kind of story that I would go after, and that story ended up in Best American Sports Writing, and it was you know the ESPN.com that I was writing for you know, gave it a big big blowout. Um, so I didn't really have to deal that much with you know the leagues. And being told what to do and what to, what not to do, so I can't really speak from personal experience on that. Um, but I, I got to tell, tell you, I, I when I had the offer then to go to the New York Times and to go back to the newspaper business, which was where I had spent my entire career, um, I was, you know, I, it was a, a dream job for me, and I was really glad. I'm really glad to be back in newspapers. Let's just put it that way. I am. Um, yeah, and especially at the time, I mean, it's a dream come true. I, I can hardly, still, kind of have to pinch myself every day that I work for the New York Times. Um, and I worked at ESPN, by the way, for um, well, it turned out to be a little under three years. So out of my whole career, that's a maybe. Maybe I would have had more experience with the kinds of things that you're talking about if I'd stayed longer. But and I was f- fully planning on staying longer, by the way, until I sort of out of the blue got an offer to come to the to the times so Mm. yeah so there's one thing that i'm going to pick up on that you mentioned about the jim thorpe story this is kind of personal the last place that i went for like a vacation before lockdown was jim thorpe pa oh wow yeah. Exactly. <laughs> no way. Yeah. Cause I like, it's only, oh, I forget how far from where I am outside of Philly, maybe, uh-huh. maybe an hour and a half away. Um, and like, did you take that train or did you, did you drive down? Um, no, only cause it was March and the train, I guess only runs in the summer. Okay. Um, but we had heard that it was really beautiful. It's called like, we used, it's like little Switzerland or something. It's like a nickname. Um, yeah, yeah and it, it's a beautiful town, but I was like, really Thorpe, like, this is history. We have to go. Um, and I have like all these like dreams of like doing some kind of like public history project with my students because we went to like 
you may have seen this, the like little Jim Thorpe kind of statue and stuff. And it's just very uncritical. I mean, it like praises him, but it doesn't talk that critically about everything that happened to him. Um, yeah. I didn't think so anyways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. There's a lot there. There's a lot there. We could do a whole show on that one. Um, but uh, wow. That's, that's interesting. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Go back and read my story. Yeah, yeah, I know. Now, now I'm like, oh, I definitely have to, because there's so yeah. much about it that I don't know. Yeah. Um, right. So, so another thing we wanted to ask you about um, is that, so you, although you were an elite athlete in college, um, you didn't seem to really start covering sports until later in your career. Now, was this a conscious choice or was it was just something that sort of just happened or kind of how did that, how did that happen? Well, that was a very conscious choice uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, I, uh, you know, I grew up in a household where, uh, from the time I was a little kid, you know, I'm 53. So when I was, when I'm in about five years old, five or six or so, you know, Watergate's going on. And, uh, you know, I, so I'm in the, I'm in the type of household that at five, six years old, we're talking about Watergate. We're like watching the nightly news where, you know, our, you know, our heroes are the, you know, David Brinkley and, you know, the, the and, you know, Woodard and, and Bernstein and, you know, all that kind of, that's sort of the, those sorts of reporters, new, you know, straight news reporters were uh, sort of gods in, in my household. And, you know, I have a little bit of a, I've actually pretty unusual background in that I'm biracial, my dad's black, my mom's white. Um, both of them have recently passed now. Um, but, uh, you know, they were married in 1954. <laughs> so the Brown versus Board of Education year. I just say that to say that, like, they were, you know, because of the family that they created, the, I come from sort of an environment where, like, we were always on top of what was going on. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, that, and, and so, you know, through the 60s, and we were always discussing all of, the, you know, politics and, you know, sports was very important too, but the sports was always kind of seen as a little bit of a, it was important, but also a sidelight in a way um, to all these current events that we had to really, as a family, really keep up with. And, um, you know, when you come from, you know, parents that are sort of trailblazers like that, it's sort of, it's not forced on you. You just, it sort of is really is a necessity. So that's how I grew up thinking. I, I always, I did want to, I did think, oh, you know, to be great to be a reporter, but when I thought of myself being a reporter, I always thought of being like a news reporter, and, and I, you know, I do, you know, like Watergate, you know, <laughs> all the presidents, man. And, um, so then, when I got into, when I actually did start, uh, you know, in my first jobs and started, became clear that this was going to be the my career path or what I was going to try to do. I really, um, I really purposefully. Decided. I really thought that you know, I'm a, I'm a six foot two inch, two hundred, now two hundred and twenty pound, uh, you know, black dude. Um, most and I played sports, you know, in college and at a pretty high level, you know, you know, at a high, at a high level. And most people are going to then think that that I'm going to want to go into sports, and that's like you know, um, I always uh, just part of my being, I guess, is always to try to like do things sort of the opposite of what people would expect. So it was a big thing then for me to not do sports intentionally. And um, I, I then, so that's the extra layer that I wanted to prove myself. I wanted to prove that I could cover, 
you know, city hall that I could, that I could write, you know, about whatever politics or the city and, uh, or cities, which I've always been very interested in cities and like sort of the urban environment and, uh, the law and all that. So I just wanted to prove myself in that realm, which would sort of defy type and, um, defy expectations. And, um, so I was, I'd never thought actually that I would be a sports reporter. And uh, it's still the majority of my career even now was uh, sort of on the other side, working for city desks and in um, the metro sections for, you know, these big papers. So um, I, 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 even though I've been at sports now for, you know, for several years, and I was actually a sports columnist briefly at the LA Times um, for about two years, uh, I still kind of consider myself a metro reporter at, at heart. So. Um, yeah. Again, sorry. I hope that's not a long-winded. No, uh, <laughs> no, no, no. I lo- we love yeah, yeah, we yeah. love the deep dive. Yeah. That's that's yeah. what we're here yeah. for. We are we're we're yeah. not here for short answers. We're here to like really yeah. think it through. I mean, you got to know both Johanna and I. You know, we are qualitative interviewers by trade. Like that's that's actually what we do in our academic research. So, sitting down and having a chance to talk to someone we're interested in and who has like really important things to say about the issues we care about. That's what we do. That's what we're here for. Um, so yeah, yeah, this is this is the good stuff yeah. for us. Um, yeah. And yeah. speaking of the good and, stuff, and, we're going go yeah. to oh, go. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. One of the and, and is, you know in, in terms of defi- defying type and defying expectations, that's really part of the reason that I ended up trying to play tennis because uh-huh. I think most people would have thought like, yeah I would try to play. F- Honestly, I probably have a frame for football, really, um, and um, uh, and I mean I'm a, kind of the same body type and size of like you know maybe a strong safety and um but you know what arthur ash was my my guy and uh-huh. my dad played tennis and loved tennis and he was a former college basketball player who decided that he would he also always tried to defy type so um man i was just like okay you know what this is what i'm gonna do and i don't care what anybody you know so yeah yeah so yeah I get that. I totally get that. And look, you you took us right to the place. Um, We've been kind of dancing around alluding to the fact that, you know, you were a college tennis player, college tennis player at Berkeley. Um, So, you know, we talk all the time and we just wrote a piece that came out uh, in the Chronicle of Higher Education um, very recently on the college football season. Uh, And I think, you know, I'm not going to make you go on the record with this and uh, if that's a touchy question because it is for a lot of people, but like we are certainly very much on the record. Like for us, college football, college basketball, men's college sports that are revenue sports, mostly women's college basketball, it's exploitation. Uh, and it's not hard to understand that argument, right? I mean, there's like political issues about it. I mean, it's, this country is so political that like you can't even wear a mask without being, that being a political question. So yes, for some people saying <laughs> that sport is political, or sorry, is exploitative is a political question if we're talking about like the revenue sports, but it's a really easy argument to understand. But that's actually not what we're getting into here, right? Because actually I think the tennis is fascinating because when we're talking about the non-revenue sports, it is actually a complicated and difficult question to parse. And, you know, our friend of the show, Victoria Jackson, has argued uh, in the LA Times, in fact, that revenue sport subsidizes non-revenue sport, giving non-revenue athletes um, that actual so-called, because we never like to use this term, student-athlete experience that is promised, for instance, to elite football players um, in a manner that typically essentially involves a transfer of benefit. This is Jackson's argument. There's a transfer of benefit 
typically from disproportionately black athletes in the revenue sports to those who are largely white in the non-revenue sports. But we got a big but here because you were a black athlete in a particularly white sport at a time when it was even more white at a school like Berkeley uh, with tremendous academic demands. And I just really want to know how you unpack those dynamics through your own experience. Well, can we have a whole nother show again for that, that topic? <laughs> <laughs> we'll have exactly. it back on for sure if we could. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, it's Victoria who's become one of my favorites too. So I've really enjoyed t- speaking to her, um, uh, 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 you know, of late for a few stories. Um, wow. Uh, yeesh. Uh, the... <sighs> You know, most definitely in football and basketball, they power the revenues for, you know, for the for for these athletic departments and the other the non-revenue sports exist in their, you know, you know, in, in their orbit and are are able to take advantage of money that and prestige that they bring in. Um, it has, I think it needs to be known, and I don't. I've got to really. I don't. I got to say. I, I don't really know the breakdown of this, but it's increasingly, it's become incre- increasingly normal at, say, a school like Berkeley, where the tennis team really has to go out and fund itself in a lot of ways. I mean, in big time ways. I mean, the coaches are almost becoming, um, you know, like like they, they've got to be raising money for their, you know, for their programs to make their programs like fairly self sufficient. And I don't know the breakdown exactly with between then how much of the money that they raise for their programs um like or how what the percentage of that in the, of the total uh but certainly the big sports you know particularly football have drive drive the drive the economic train um and yes uh, uh you know you know tennis you know, soccer, water, water polo, baseball. Baseball is incredibly especially at the highest levels that I've as far as I've seen, incredibly white uh, sport, which is pretty, it's you know, pretty sad considering you know, uh, the, you know, the history with Jackie Robinson and the way that the game was becoming, starting to become much more integrated in the '70s and '80s. But college baseball doesn't definitely does not reflect that. Uh, the so yeah, you know, I I wouldn't quibble with the idea that that. Uh, Football and particularly football, also basketball to some extent, um, help you know power that power of the, and the, the the experience then for for somebody like me, you know, who ended up I, I walked on at Cal, um, you know, um, and then ended up having a scholarship. Uh, but you know, on my team, we actually had a f- fairly diverse team. We had. Uh, Carl Chang, who was my, Michael Chang's brother, uh, was my was my doubles partner, and then we had another black player as well on my team for most of the most of my college career. So that was actually, you know, basically kind of we would often have three uh, players of color, you know, in out of the top six, which is the starting lineup. Um, so uh, in a team that was a top ten perennial kind of top ten team, so that was pretty unusual. You know, tennis and golf and all of these sports are typically, and when I played and still are, um, typically very, very, very white, very um, upper, up middle to upper middle to beyond in term in terms of class status of the players. Um, there are a lot of players that probably 
their own scholarship and they probably um, their parents their parents very easily could pay for their for their not easily but you know could pay for their whatever hundred how much or you know cost immense immense cost now to go to college at any college so um yeah and uh, you know i i experienced the all the benefits of of uh being a you know quote unquote star athlete on a campus i wasn't a star like in the you know i wasn't i was sort of at the level kind of just below kind of an all-american type you know um uh show but on campus i was known and from tennis and our team was really good we were number one in the nation for part of my senior year and we had a lot you know so those you you experience what the kind of the football players experience in a way and you know that was pretty pretty fun at the time <laughs> um i don't know my my answering your the the question is there is there more that you want to know on on, on that uh, no, that that's. I mean, that yeah. that's it. I, I'm just, you know, it's one of those things no. because we can talk about the structures all we want, and we do, and I think it's, mm-hmm. it's critical that we do because that's that's what if we're going to talk about exploitation, you have to understand it in structural terms. But that doesn't mean that everyone has the same experience, you know. And and for me, one of the fascinating things in my research when I talk to athletes is just how do you navigate those structures, right? Like, what is it actually like to live that kind of context? Um, and it and it it often teaches us a lot about especially for us our focus on harm right like what does it look like in practice for people what do they get out of it what does it feel like and and, yeah yeah, go ahead so you know i think i was pretty aware you you know even back then in my you know 18 19 20 21 of the disparities going on and sort of how the particularly then how football players basketball players uh, you know predominantly african-american players many of them from the inner city were who had not gone to great not had great educational backgrounds but it had just enough to kind of to, to qualify to get into Berkeley. Um, uh, how they were, you know, which was used by the, like by, by campus and many of them, you know, the graduation rates, um, you know, uh, the, the classes that they would be steered to the fact that they couldn't have uh, sort of a normal, normal college experience. I mean, everybody talks about these degrees that they get and all that, but when you're an athlete, um, you're not, you're not really part of the regular, you, you miss out on a lot. And even, even players on the tennis team, I never took a class in the afternoon at, at Cal mm-hmm. in, in my year, not one. So I missed out on some pretty damn good classes. We, we practiced pro the tennis team actually probably, I think they did. We practiced like probably more than any other team at Cal at, because it was all year and it was like three hours a day in the afternoon all year yes no i forgot the two point. seasons the two yeah, seasons for tennis yeah so and we traveled a ton i think that we traveled we actually traveled more than but you know i'm not you know I, we still did fine and i again i'm 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 privileged and no doubt about it and then i came from middle class background my dad was a business owner in in seattle where i grew up um had a you know successful small architecture firm i had all the benefits of like a solid education and all the things going for me were, you know, I could kind of skate through school in a way. I wasn't, a, I didn't do great. And I regret that I didn't put more into it, but I, you know, I kind of knew how to work the system and I knew I had two college educated parents. I, you know, it's ridiculous, the privilege that I had. And then you could see the many players, you know, around, many athletes around me, male and female athletes around me, 
just not they you know they don't have they don't have all that all that stuff all the cultural capital that say I had that allowed me to have confidence to be in that world or just you know to to survive it and they would kind of be chewed you know chewed up and spit out a little bit you know even at a school like Cal uh, which probably did a better much better job than many you know many other schools you could you could think of so um, I could see that happening definitely at, at that time and I you know. Remember at least one occasion when kind of speaking out about it within the athletic department. Um, so you know, there's a lot going on there, and that you know, and then you end up at these schools too that are just these bastions of whiteness for the most part. Um, also now, you know, growing Asian populations too, with almost no, it, almost no black and Latino students on on many of these campuses. And you you'll have you know, if you go on the campus of uh, on Berkeley's campus now, you know, it's rare to find. You know, just student. It's rare to find black students who are not athletes. Like that's, you know, and that always bothered the hell out of me. You know, like, and 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 I went to Berkeley at a time when actually our our percentage we were ten percent of I think my freshman year was ten percent African American. I think it was like the largest freshman class in Berkeley in Berkeley's history, even probably still because now it's gone down after the anti affirmative action campaign in the in the 1990s so wow. now it's really down to just like you know hey you know you're a football player you're a basketball player and you know and then there's few and far between and just just plain students and it's it's a pretty um it's a pretty tough atmosphere then for you know for for those athletes um and that, you know, i know that they feel they can feel very very isolated and very used and um you know uh so it's just it's a really complex thing i mean nathan if you're a duke i mean you i'm sure you you, you know you know that 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 sort of experience um that's that's right no i i do i see i, I was thinking as you were speaking you, you you nailed it i mean i think that duke and berkeley have a lot in common do you know how many under approximately how many undergrads there are at berkeley you know, I don't. I don't. Yeah, I have no idea either. I, I like. Yeah. I have this. The U.S. system is hard for me sometimes because I'm, I'm from Canada. Yeah. Um, and like you know, University of twenty five thirty. I think. Yeah. You think yeah. twenty five or thirty? Okay, yeah. gotcha. And that's yeah, that's kind of what I was guessing. But I was like, maybe Berkeley is one of these weird ones that's almost like a private school but public. Um, but no, but Duke is weird, right? Because Duke is so small. It's like almost mm -hmm. like a liberal arts college, except with all the big time sports. Um, and so what what's really weird about the dynamics at, at Duke is that there's an incredibly high proportion of elite athletes relative to the, the student body as a whole. Um, and so like one of the, the great benefits for me is that I get to work with athletes a lot um, mm -hmm. because just, there are just more of them around on campus. But going to what you're saying, I mean, the culture, the culture at my institution is, you know, at the end of the day, if they're talking to faculty, if administrators are talking to faculty about how to approach uh, college athletes on campus, it's a problem that needs to be solved, right? Mm -hmm. It's a problem mm -hmm. of engagement, ostensibly. That is to yeah. say that like the athletes just aren't engaging enough and we've got to just figure out a way to solve that problem, right? So it completely downloads the responsibility for a system that is so viciously exploitative uh, and alienating. I loved how you spoke to the alienation because I think that's a huge part of it. Um, and yet we're, then, we're, then we're supposed to be talking about how this is the athlete's fault. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and that that has a powerful impact. Right. I mean, because 
you know, if, if that's what faculty are hearing from above, then they, that just validates the views of a lot of especially white faculty who know nothing about sports. I'm not talking about Duke right now, by the way. I'm just, I'm just talking <laughs> about the entire U.S. higher education system. You got all these white faculty members who think that sport doesn't belong in university at all. Um, and so these athletes, and by the way, this is, I'm telling you right now, these faculty think that ath these athletes don't belong at their university. They don't deserve to be at the university and they treat them like they don't deserve to be at the university. Right. And that's the racism. I mean, it's fundamental racism. And you said alienation. I mean, that's what people feel. They feel tremendous alienation because they, you know, if that's your attitude to an athlete in your class, it's going to be drip. It's going to be, you know, dripping off you when you deal with them and they know exactly yeah. what you think of them. And it's, it's disgusting. I mean, it's just another, that's one of the, I think I like to, I love that you brought it up because I think that that's part of the educational dimension of this that does that gets lost in these conversations. We want to talk about the dollars and cents. We want to talk about the compensation issue, right? It's easy. It's sexy to talk about billion dollars, but here's the thing. The, the compensation is actually the education. And like you've pointed out, they don't get to go to class when they want to go to class athletes because because what comes first practice schedules come first, but then it's not just that. Cause it's like, if you're in the classroom, maybe you're falling asleep because you're so exhausted from the labor you're doing for sports that you just can't be alert, right? Or your faculty member is being racist towards you. All of these things make it impossible for you to get the education that is supposed to be the compensation for your work. Yeah. Yeah. And it's been like this. Yeah. I mean, I can't, yeah, that, that there's, there's definitely an alienation and a sense of, you know, separation. And, um, you know, uh, I would on occasion, I would always say like, you know, if I've kind of feel that on occasion, you know, then, you know, <laughs> some, you know, black dude with a white mom who grew up in mostly white neighborhoods who plays tennis and I feel, and I'm feeling a little bit of that, then uh yeah how am i going to feel you know if i'm the running back and i'm from compton and i'm at cal and i you know never you know i i, I wrote a story for the la times a couple of years ago, in 2012 about uh valedictorian this was, a, this was an, a, a kid who was not an athlete but uh a kid who was the valedictorian of his high school jefferson high school in in south los angeles near sort of near sort of relatively near near crenshaw high which most people have heard of um so you know young Keishon Campbell, you know, Keishon went to, went, was the valedictorian of his school, 4.0 student at his high school, but, you know, went to, went to Berkeley and was just overwhelmed, just overwhelmed. He had never, he didn't, you know, he's a smart kid and did everything that he right at, at, in high school. But I mean, just the cultural capital alone of knowing how to navigate in that world, uh, for a kid who really had hardly hardly left South LA in his whole life, um, yeah, it's just it's just uh, there's a lot there, and it's just, you know, I mean, the university universities and the university environment that's just a part of it. I mean, it's a broader societal issue, you know, much much deeper than just that. You know, by the time those students get to the, the, those campuses, um, it just speaks to our whole society and the way society is set up. You know. Uh, you know, and then like, you know, last, you know, I, I think of, you know, my dad was one of the first black athletes at the University of Oregon. You know, when he, you think of Nike U right now, and you know, right, U of O and all been very successful and on TV and national, national, you know, power, powerful teams in basketball and football. When my dad went to uh, Oregon in 1950. There were, I think, 
10 to 12 black students on the entire campus. He was the third ba- black basketball player and played for his entire four years. He was the only black player. Wow. So, um, you know, uh, to hear, I always think of just the stories that, you know, that he told me about his, you know, the, the, the feelings that he would have and overcoming all that. And, but it just, it's, so it's been going, it's, it's been going on for, for really ever, but then in my dad's case, I mean, it was, yeah, it was definitely, it was the whole society. It, it is, this is all just the big picture society stuff. But, um, and it's tough. You got to be very, very strong and very lucky to sort of overcome some of this stuff. So. Yeah. And, you know, I would just to add something sort of historical, um, and I've talked about this in another episode, um, but I mean, the whole, I mean, a, a whole society is white supremacist. It's built around that structure, but like, especially universities, like from when they were first created, like Princeton, Rutgers, Harvard, Yale, all of them had, all of them were started by people that if, if they did, if the, if the people who started them themselves did not own slaves, then they were very deeply connected to aspects of the slave trade. So, I mean, it's just built into like the bedrock of some of like our first universities. So it's just not a surprise. And it's not only like then, you know, like the, the, gra- the, the men who were graduating from there were then going across the U.S. as territories were stolen from indigenous people. And they were um, like tutors for yeah. Children whose parents are enslaved, right? So, so there's just like such a long history um, that it's just not—it's not a surprise, I guess. I mean, it's it's awful and it's sad, but it just like truly permeates like higher education, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. So then, when you're a student, how do you navigate around all that? I mean, that's just your reality. That is the reality, and um, even if you don't know the particulars, you can feel it. And then, you know, how do you survive that? Um, mm-hmm. I can say I always consider myself just a, one of the luck, you know, lucky, and then try to think of, you know, uh, others who who had more struggles, just all the way around, not only at school but in in, in every aspect. So, um, yeah, well, you have more shows. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I just have one more thing. Now that we're sort of yeah. talking about it, is you know, I've been thinking and kind of really worrying about what it's going to be like going going back in the fall, and you know, while a lot of schools mine included, are still saying we're going face-to-face, although I've officially chosen to teach online. You know, what is it going to be like for students of color in like our classrooms, even if it's online? You know, like they are going to be expected to speak to this like huge, all these anti-racist protests, and they're going to be expected to speak about them, you know, intelligently and to speak for like speak correctly and speak for all people of color. Um, that's a heck of a lot of pressure and it's absolutely not fair. And then of course, they're going to be with, a, you know, a number of white students who are on the other side of the political spectrum and believe they should have free speech and that they should be able to say whatever they want and that they can essentially oppress people because of free speech. So and I've just sort of been thinking about what are those dynamics going to be like in the classroom? Um, I have some anxieties about it, as you can tell, and it's just, you know, it's, it'll be, it'll be, it'll be really something I think when we all go back in the fall. Yeah, I mean, you know, I hadn't really thought about that, but that, that's absolutely true. And then what I, what I say when you're, as you're describing that, what I think of is the, you know, let's say you're a black student and you don't, and you don't want to speak up or you're, mm-hmm. or you're quiet or you just don't know that much or you're still forming. I mean, we're all forming our opinions at all times. And then the burden that, that 
you know, uh, for some, for some, that'll be, it'll, they'll, they'll just be fine. They want to, they want to talk. They got the facts that they're ready, you know, they're, you know, and they'll, they'll, they'll thrive. But then, you know, my heart goes out to the kids that they just want to be kids kind of, and they're still learning and they're still, and, and yeah, I, I could see that, that causing anxiety and pressure. And I mean, um, you know, there were, I remember times in my, remember one time in a lecture at Berkeley, you know, I was probably about 21 years old, but they probably around junior year and a couple of white students start going in on like race, race theory about intelligence and race and, and how they're naturally, you know, white, uh, whites are naturally, you know, superior and all this stuff. It was like a sociology class or something. I can't remember what it was, but I mean, you know, I'm in a lecture hall and probably there's like four or five of us, four or five African-American students and like with like, you know, 150, one of those big lecture halls. Oh my, yes. I just don't remember just like, okay, I wanted to say something, but I, and I probably could have said something if I was like, if I had a little time to think about it, but you know, I, I just, I just didn't. And then I felt terrible for not doing that and just, you know. And, the, and the, the professor tried to shut the, the students down, but but didn't really do a great job of it. And I think he was sort of surprised too. And I don't know for some reason that's just one of those moments in my from my you know my my meager academic career that I really remember. And um, a bit a bit scarring, but that's just the reality of being black in America. I mean, mm. sorts of things in different different sort of ways and situations happen all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I just, before I wrap up, I just want to say the burden, I think the way you put it, like that's such a burden um, amongst many others, but, you know, certainly that they shouldn't be expected to, to sort of speak up. Um, You know, I just want to say, well, Derek and I want to say, Nathan, I don't know why I said Derek, um, want to say thank you so very, very much. You were incredibly generous with your time and your insights um, about the story with Maya Moore and Irons and just really um, sort of explaining like the humanity of it all. And you just, you did that, you have done that beautifully in your work, but also just like hearing it in your own words was, was really something else. Um, and I know I really appreciate like sort of you being reflective. Um, I, you know, it's, it's always really interesting to sort of see how people think through their own experiences. And so just really, really appreciate you doing that with us. Oh, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Appreciate you guys having me on. Thank you for tuning into another episode of the End of Sport podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to like, share, and subscribe. Give us a follow on Twitter or Instagram at End of Sport Pod, or shoot us an email at theendofsport at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.